We're going to read from the book of Mark now, chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. You'll find the passage in your worship guide here, so please follow along. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. Thanks, Chris. And thanks all of you guys. It's a joy to be able to serve here with you all and to see you out here this morning. Uh, what, a, what a passage, isn't it incredible? This text, this story, it appears in all three of the synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's an important text in Mark. That's where we're at right now. And the, the whole thing we're talking about is this is Jesus. We want us to know in these times, in this, in this space in our lives, that the most important thing that we should press into is an understanding more fully of who Jesus is and what that means for all of life. That's what we've been doing. What a story. Jesus shining like the sun. This incredible story. I always think it's interesting when people try and make movies out of the life of Jesus it just these kind of moments, they never quite cut it, you know, like trying to, like when Jesus ascends to heaven. I, saw, I remember watching a National Geographic, they were talking about the life of Jesus, and it just was, I was, how are they going to do this? And it just looked really cheesy. It's this dude in a, in a toga, you know, going through the clouds, and there was this, you know, rising music. But this one is incredible. And I think there's no way with any uh, digital trickery you could really create just the power, just the breathtaking awe of an experience like this of encountering Jesus in his, his glorious Lord of heaven and earth, the creator and sustainer of life, just glorified in front of you. And it might well be called a mountaintop experience, right? I actually was trying to figure out, did that phrase come from this passage? They're up on a mountain. And I, I couldn't find any definitive answer to that, but I think it, it fits, right? It's a mountaintop experience. Can you remember a time when you had what might be called a mountaintop. Do you know that phrase, or am I speaking like a different form of English? You're like, what's he talking about, mountaintop experience? We don't know of that such a thing in America. Um, do you remember anything? How about a literal mountaintop experience? Who's climbed Mount Everest here? There's always one. Rudy, good job, man. With or without oxygen? What about Mount Baldy? I expect more hands. Kind of, Tara said. Good job. Mount Whitney. Uh, Mount St. Helens. 
Ronna did. My wife Ronna climbed it before it blew up and then sledded down the backside of it on a plastic sheet, right? Mike McKinley. Anyone been to Alaska? Climbed up there. Oh, look at that. Oh, yes. Or perhaps it was something like the birth of your first child was a mountaintop experience, at least once the baby was born. Or, or for fairness sake, maybe your second or third child was almost as good. Um, your wedding day, maybe that was a mountaintop experience. Or getting a new job, that job that you really hoped to get. Or leaving a job, maybe that was a mountaintop experience. Or for those of you guys who are in school or college, passing like a final exam is kind of exhilarating. Celebrating with your friends that that work is done now. And now what, right? Winning an award, like the three-legged race in kindergarten, you know? You and your buddy stumbled along, but you were first. Or serious things, you know, going through a really serious illness and coming out this, the, this, the other side with, with some health can be a mountaintop experience. Or maybe just time with God. Maybe there's some time in your life where you felt an encounter with God that was profound to you, kind of like this. And, and I think my mountaintop experience was when I first came to faith. I was 13 years old, and I was in a beautiful part of England that's called the Lake District. And I was in a castle which, where they had a, a, a camp for young people. And it was just a really beautiful setting. And I, I went forward in response to this invitation, and I gave my life to Jesus. And it literally... It literally transformed me. I was this young kid, 13 years old or so, praying about everything all the time, seeing answers to prayer, full of faith. Yeah, amazing. You know, I think whatever the mountaintop experience is, I think there's some a couple of common themes which fit very well in what we talk about a lot in New Song. I think a mountaintop experience is, is something that involves God, a connection with God or a connection of a deepening relationship with other people. I think it's always about community. And the ideal form of community is to have that vertical and horizontal God and others relationship. So you're thinking of a mountaintop experience now? Have I taken you there thinking of something? So the next question is, are you still there? It still lasted, right? You just never left it. You're on the mountaintop, wherever that was, there you are. Just woohoo, just having an ecstatic experience. Not true, is it? Like life may have some mountain experiences, but it's got lots of valleys. And sometimes, sometimes these valleys are really long and they're really deep. The, the, in Scripture, Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, sometimes you're longing so much for just a glimpse of sunlight and you've noticed there's even some moss growing on the back of your ears because you've been in the valley for a long time. We don't stay there, do we? So let's think about this text. Why did Jesus invite these three men into this encounter? Perhaps that was maybe a cruel trick to take into this place and then go off into what was yet to come, which we're going to cover over the coming weeks. Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. First of all, he picked three men. And if we follow these men's stories, they became profoundly influential leaders in the church as it was born and as it grew and as it moved into the world, taking the good news of the gospel into all the world. Peter, who was there on the mountain, he was responsible probably for the recollections that gave birth to this gospel, the gospel of Mark, and therefore also the gospels of Matthew and Luke. It was his recollections. And John and James, they were profound uh, leaders. So perhaps Jesus brought them up there for a couple of reasons. Well, one is to connect 
his work with their past. These were men that were steeped in the understanding of the Old Testament. Well, it wasn't even called the Old Testament then. It was the only word of God. And these sightings of Elijah and Moses, it kind of has this continuity from the old, what they have been raised to believe and the heroes of their faith. And then with Jesus now, there's something profoundly poetic and, and beautiful about that connection of these three people the second thing is perhaps to give them something to hold on to when things get dark, to remember. As someone once said, don't forget in the dark what you saw or heard in the light. And so they loved it though, didn't they? They loved being there on that mountain. Uh, they wanted so badly to stay there. It was so intense that Peter wanted to put tents up. That's a terrible joke, sorry. Ron said I shouldn't even try and make an intense joke and camping joke. But Peter wanted to set up tents and say, let's make a tent for you and Elijah, one for Moses. It's going to be awesome. We're going to stay here in this wonderful experience. But they can't stay there. They can't stay there. Why not? Well, one of the main reasons is something we've talked about a few times, and it's the concept of the now and the not yet. The now and the not yet. And it's the idea that, that the kingdom has come, but we don't see it in all its fullness. We don't see it yet in all its fullness, and that is yet to come. But we now live in the now. And at that time, for now, there were people to be ministered to, people to hear the good news down in the valleys, in the villages, and the cities. And not only that, this experience doesn't seem to have been something they could comprehend. They were not ready yet for this, this appearance of Jesus in this way. It was a beautiful thing and something they perhaps to look back on with to give them confidence and hope in dark times. But it says they were frightened and they were confused. This was beyond their understanding. They were not ready for this yet. But Peter wanted to stay there. And so we have these moments, I think, when we feel a sense of joy. We might call them mountaintop experiences. And perhaps, as I've said, it involves a connection with God somehow and with others. And I think that's the theme of what the best parts of life should be about, that we have a relationship with God that is deepening and growing and a relationship with one another, as Mike was saying, that is deepening and growing. And that's where we're going to have more of that kind of experience. But inevitably, we're going to come back down the mountain. And that's what they did. They came back down the mountain. Josh next week is going to tell us what happened when they came back down the mountain. And it wasn't very fun. So how about this? Let's think about what steps might we consider as we come down the mountain, as we inevitably will. Well, the first thing is step one, listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. It says that there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. As we said, this is an amazingly meaningful sentence that Moses and Elijah, and for us it seems, oh, Moses and Elijah, yeah, he, like Red Sea parted. I think I know something about Elijah. For these men, these were the pinnacle of their story. And they were with them. But then the text at one point says, and suddenly they realized that they had gone and all they saw was Jesus. It's just kind of passing along. And then this voice comes that they clearly seem to recognize as a divine voice. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. As we come down the mountain, listen to him. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, it starts this way. Long ago, at many times and in many, many ways. This is to the Hebrew people. Thus the name of the book Hebrews. 
It says, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So similarly, we can bring all of our stories, all of our past, our ancestry, our painful seasons, our hopes and dreams, and bring them to that place where they are transferred into this relationship with Jesus. As we come down the mountain, the first thing is we say, we listen to him, we seek him. Knock, the door will be open to you. Seek and you will find. Ask and you will receive. So step one, listen to Jesus. Seek him. Step two, like the disciples, ponder what it means that Jesus rose from the dead. He said, um, last week we talked about, it was a very strong passage, but the first time that Jesus said, I'm going to be killed. And he mentions rising again, but it's probably like kind of a little footnote. And in the shock of the first part about dying, I don't think they even heard that part. But in this one, he really focuses on the resurrection as they're coming down the mountain. Because as they come down the mountain to what awaits them in the valleys, in the streets and villages, and very soon in the city of Jerusalem, the powerful religious and political movers and shakers will find the message of the gospel intolerable and will seek to stamp it out. And they most need to understand that there is life, that there is resurrection beyond any earthly loss or death. Jesus showed his glory to these men on the mountain, but he rose from the dead in a graveyard near a garden beside the city on the earth. And there is resurrection, there is life, there is always life. So as we come down the mountain, we find ourselves in the valley, listen to Jesus first. Let that be the primary voice that you listen out for. Secondly, ponder what it means that Jesus rose from the dead defeated death and brings us with him into life. And the third thing is this, is as you come down the mountain, count the cost of following him. Count the cost. There is a cost. These disciples are going to discover what that looks like. He mentions these two Old Testament characters, Moses and Elijah. And they had such a different kind of experience. Like things were hard at times, but Moses died he saw the promised land off from a mountain top, this glorious vista of the promised land that the people of Israel would be going into. And then he died on that mountain. He was aged 120. It said he was still vigorous. And it says this mysterious thing like the Lord buried him and no one knows where his grave is. But like this kind of cool, heroic thing. Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire, the story tells us, right? So wow, Moses and Elijah... But then there's, there's this connection made in the passage. If you look, they say, wasn't Elijah to come? That the teachers say that? And he says, yeah, Elijah has come and they've done to him what they're going to do. And he's talking about John the Baptist. This is the new hero of the faith in the kingdom of God. Did John the Baptist die at a ripe old age with a view of the kingdom of heaven ahead of him? Was he taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire? No, he was imprisoned in filthy dungeons in King Herod's palace because he dared to speak a word about justice and righteousness to the powerful leaders, only to have his head removed because of a disgruntled, upset queen. 
and a hasty promise. So the path ahead was going to be hard. And as the Lord goes, so go his disciples. So we're not differentiating too clearly between mountains and valleys because the fact is no matter where you are or where you think you are, the Lord Jesus is with you in all circumstances. One of Jesus' last promises to his disciples was, and I will be with you even until the end of the age. When I was a kid in Scotland, you tired of hearing about Scotland yet? Just raise your hand if you're sick of it. Let's make it Wales. When I was a kid in Scotland, my dad used to take me hiking. And it was one of my favorite things to do with my dad. In later years, we didn't get on too well. Now we're golden. It was that middle time though. You know what that's like, parents, right? And kids. But when I was younger, man, it was so good. Uh, we'd climb in his Volkswagen van and we'd camp down in the valley and then we'd pick a mountain and start climbing. And it may have been one of my favorite things to do, but like any young kid, I could be a bit of a whiny brat. And if you think kid whining in American is bad, you should hear it in Scottish. And there's this phenomenon for those of you who climb mountains ever that sometimes in mountains, you have this sense that the horizon that is ahead of you, you think it's the summit. You think it's the peak. It's the, you're, you're getting there. But turns out, inevitably, as you get closer up, this other horizon looms up in the distance, right? And it's called a false horizon. Well, with every false horizon that came and went, the tone of my whining would grow louder and higher in pitch. And my dad, he was a tolerant man sometimes, man. But after a few trips, I figured it out. I figured it out that we're going to get to the top. And I learned some patience and perseverance, and most of all, I learned trust. Trust in my dad. My father was confident that we would indeed get there soon. He was equipped with a map and a compass and lots of experience and enough snacks to get a 10-year-old, 9-year-old up to the top of the mountain. And so for these disciples, they're going to face a lot of challenges, as we all do. They're not special people. They're just human beings like you are, like I am. And they were going to face some false horizons up ahead, you know, they, they, this good, they're going to face a big one soon when all of their hopes and dreams are going to come crashing down. But they were being inevitably led to the summit, to the top, and we are exactly the same. We are exactly the same. We're going to face these times when we think we see the summit, we're there, and then the disappointment comes, and we learn, we learn to trust the one who leads us, the one who guides us, the one who knows where he's taking us. So what makes a valley or a dark time or a difficult time a place when we can, where we can encounter joy, even in the midst of darkness and even in the midst of struggle? Well, I think it goes back to this kind of definition of what a mountaintop experience might be. And it's about deepening connections and experiences with God and with other people. That is what has the capability to make our hard times, if not just more bearable, actually something transformative, perhaps even joyful. Because one day we're going to experience the fullness. We're going to see him shining in all of his glory. And even I love that concept of seeing Moses and Elijah. That tells me that we're going to see people. We're going to recognize people long since 
passed away. And we're going to experience this incredible unity and oneness and fellowship with them. But until then, we are in the here and now. And what makes this work is really the church. And the church is simply a group of people who decided that they want to follow Jesus and they want to do it together. That's what we're called to do, to show up. You're not just coming to church on Sunday. You're, you're doing something revolutionary by being here on Sunday because there's a lot of darkness and your presence here says that the darkness does not have the last word, that Christ has conquered death. And we are here as a testimony and as a witness to that power and life. And the more that we keep doing this together, whether it's in the garden or the pantry or whatever else that we do, but we do it together, the more this world will see evidence that Christ has come, that Christ is here. Amen. We are so loved. And you don't need to be alone.